This week's episode is brought to you by me. That's right, instead of an ad for Audible this week, I wanted to talk to all of you about something else before we get started. You see, I'm coming up on my general exams, they'll be in autumn this year, and I'm looking at work prospects to fund myself while working through my dissertation. State-funded universities are not exactly swimming in cash right now. I'm looking into teaching, so if you or anyone you know is in that business, especially if you teach at a high school where I don't need to spend another year getting certified just to work there, please get in touch, I'd love to talk to you about it. This holds even if you're not in Washington, since I don't actually have to be here to complete my dissertation, though it certainly would help. Thanks for listening, and now, back to your regularly scheduled programming. Hello, and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 89, A Day in the Life of Meiji Japan. This is one folks have been asking for for a while now, and I think it's well past time we took it on. The Meiji period was one of the eras of greatest change in Japanese history, arguably the greatest. The only real competition comes from the Chinese-style reforms of the early Nara period, and the early Edo reforms led by the Tokugawa. Get we, and I use that both in the sense of we on this podcast and we historians in general, spend a great deal of time talking about high politics rather than daily life when it comes to the Meiji period. Now, high politics is very important, and looking back, I'd still defend focusing on it first, but that's no reason to leave this big gap in our narrative. So, let's close it. First, though, I should say two things. First, we're going to focus primarily on the late Meiji period, the 1890s on, for the simple reason that it represented, more or less, the culmination of all these changes in the Meiji era. There was so much change during this period that an episode on the 1870s and 1880s would be different. If you're curious to get a general sense of what life then would have been like, well, you can re-listen to the Daily Life in Edo episodes and imagine a series of changes shifting things from what's described in those episodes to what's described in this one. The second is that we're not really going to be dealing with the countryside very much for the simple reason that daily life in the countryside didn't change very much from the Edo to Meiji period, the only real difference being how the villages were administered, not how people lived their day-to-day lives. There are a lot of reasons for this, the most interesting of which we'll get into when we do some episodes on conscription. For now, I just want to note that real change did not start coming to the countryside until after the Second World War. So, let's head to the newly renamed city of Tokyo and start our day with a typical family. The first thing you'd notice getting up during that period was, for the first time, you had the option of starting your day prior to sunrise. Electric streetlights made their way to Japan in the 1870s, with the first ones being set up in Yokohama, one of the treaty ports and probably the most westernized city of the early Meiji period. By the 1890s, this newfangled contraption had spread to major urban centers like Tokyo and Osaka. Though electric lights inside a house remained something of a rarity for all but the super-rich. Western-style oil lamps were used by some, but they were much rarer in Japan for the simple reason that paper and wood-heavy construction is naturally extremely flammable, 
so one accident could spell catastrophe for a neighborhood. This family, which now had the option of waking up before sunrise, was a very different one from the families of the Edo period. For the first time, dual-generation nuclear families, that is to say just parents and children, became common. In part, this was an imitation of Western urban culture, and in part, it was a natural response to the fact that the urban population was really swelling during this period. A lot of people were leaving their parents behind in the countryside and moving to cities like Tokyo. This process of urbanization would continue until the 1860s. One beneficiary, for example, if you'll remember back to his biography, was Tanaka Kakue. After a small breakfast of rice, maybe some fish, and possibly some newfangled western drink called coffee, which, as anyone will tell you, is the hallmark of a truly civilized society, children and parents would go their separate ways for the day. For children, this meant a new and terrible phenomenon, compulsory education. In 1872, the brand new Ministry of Education introduced a law for compulsory education through elementary school. This requirement was then extended to six years of compulsory education in 1907. Remarkably, there was very little resistance to compulsory education. The compliance rate soared until, by the early 1890s, it was at 99%. These early years of education were co-ed, with a centralized curriculum set by the Ministry of Education, unlike in the U.S., where the curriculum is set by the local school board. In the 1870s, the curriculum was more or less lifted from the ones common in the United States. They emphasized liberal values like individuality, self-help, and entrepreneurship. However, that style of education was very rapidly subsumed in the 1880s by a more nationalist education under the influence of Education Minister Moriari Nori. These new curricula emphasized obedience to the emperor, loyalty, and respect. Actually, a good deal of it was drafted by former Confucian scholars, and the Confucian influence is very clear. Perhaps no single document better encapsulates Meiji education than the Imperial Rescript on Education. Issued in 1890, the document was designed to provide a fundamental outline of what it meant to be a student. It was issued in the Emperor's name and treated as a direct address from the Emperor to students everywhere. Now, it's worth quoting from the middle of the text at length. Quote, our subjects, be filial to your parents, affectionate to your brothers and sisters, as husbands and wives be harmonious, as friends true, bear yourselves in modesty and moderation, extend your benevolence to all, pursue learning and cultivate arts, and thereby develop intellectual faculties and perfect moral powers. Furthermore, advance public good and promote common interests. Always respect the Constitution and observe the laws. Should emergency arise, offer yourselves courageously to the state and thus guard and maintain the prosperity of our imperial throne coeval with heaven and earth. So shall ye not only be our good and faithful subjects, but render illustrious the best traditions of your forefathers. The way here set forth is indeed the teaching bequeathed by our imperial ancestors to be observed alike by their descendants and the subjects, infallible for all ages and true in all places. The education minister issued copies of the rescript and a portrait of the Meiji Emperor to every school in the country, and eventually to the colonies as well. Both were to be treated with the utmost reverence. More than once, 
Teachers and principals ran into schools that were on fire to rescue one or the other. Students were required to memorize the rescript and were punished for failing to do so. In fact, games of memorization involving the rescript became somewhat commonplace among younger children, with prizes going to those who could recite it the fastest. In addition to inculcating patriotism in children, this stage of education was designed to sort them into one of two camps, those destined to be the future intellectual leaders of the nation, and everyone else. When it came time to head up to secondary school or high school, the former were sent to what were called kotogakko, usually translated as higher schools, of which the most prestigious was the Tokyo Number no. 1 High School, or Tokyo Daiichi Kotogakko, or Ichiko, the one with the great baseball team. These schools were almost exclusively male, though a few separate all-girls schools at the same educational level did exist. However, most of those schools were private and not open to the average girl. As for everyone else, well, some went to vocational high schools to learn a trade, and some dropped out. This sorting process was accomplished by the same means it is today, rigorous testing. The curriculum at the higher schools was focused less on nationalism, since, after all, the job of making these students patriotic had already been accomplished, and more on what we would call a traditional liberal education, giving students a solid grounding in history, philosophy, math, science, art, and the other skills they'd need as future leaders of societies. A similar curriculum was followed at universities. Generally speaking, women were restricted to the first level of education, and going beyond it was rare. However, it was not unheard of. In particular, one of the five women to go on the Iwakura mission, Tsuda Umeko, was so impressed by women's universities like Bryn Mawr and Vassar in the United States that she founded her own upon returning to Japan. Now known as Tsuda College, the school she founded remains one of the best women's schools in Japan, However, it was also a private school, and thus during the Meiji period beyond the reach of most women. For a few students, after high school came an invitation of a different kind. Once a year, around 20,000 draft-age men would receive what was called an akagami, a red piece of paper serving as a draft notice. Universal conscription was introduced in 1873, and military service became mandatory for all men ages 18 to 40. In practice, not everyone was drafted. The military lacked the resources to train and equip them all. Instead, men were screened for physical and mental defects, and the best candidates were chosen. However, students at higher normal schools and universities were exempt from the draft, which may have been part of why those schools were so popular. A draft term was two years, and after serving you remained in the reserves until you were aged out. Training was harsh in the extreme. The prevailing wisdom in both services, but especially the army, was that the way to make tough recruits was to be as tough on them as possible, and so beatings, harassment, and abuse were rained down on first-year draftees. The first-year draftees put up with it because they knew during their second year it would be their turn to abuse the new crop of recruits. Now, we'll have much more to say about conscription in a future episode, but for now I just wanted to give you the basic outline. So that's the life of a student in Meiji Japan. What about once you're all grown up? Well, for women, the answer was almost universally, get married. Even for those women who with a college education, marriage was considered a social obligation which few could shirk. 
The education simply helped them find a higher-class husband by enabling them to move in higher social circles. The government worked hard to promote an official ideology for women, which it called Yosai Kenbo, Good Wife, Wise Mother. Now, in this idea, the role of women was promoted as helping create the next generation of Japanese subjects. By rearing good children and supporting their husbands while the latter worked, women were playing an essential role in Japan's modernization. If you know anything about daily life in Europe or North America during the 19th century, this probably sounds pretty familiar to the ideology of separate spheres, and in fact, it's derived in part from that line of thinking, the idea that women have a separate but equally valuable domestic sphere that they're in charge of. If this sounds incredibly patronizing, well, it is. This ideological stance was used to justify a great deal of repression aimed at women. In particular, until the 1820s, it was illegal for women to even attend a political event or engage in any sort of political activity for fear that such activism could pollute the apolitical role of motherhood. There were women who bucked this trend, the most militant of them being, of course, Kano Sugako, and look where it got her. However, a less militant but equally radical feminist and suffragette movement did begin to develop during the late Meiji period, spurred on by activists like Yosuno Akiko and Hiratsuka Raicho. The movement really wouldn't get into full swing until the 1920s, and the goal of getting women the vote remained elusive until the Allied occupation. But the feminist movement did exist in Japan, and it did score some pretty big victories, earning women the right to vote and stand in local elections, if not national ones, and arranging for a tour of Japan by the birth control advocate Margaret Sanger. So how did this translate into daily life? Well, most women were married by their early 20s. I found a couple of different average figures floating around, mostly in the 20 to 23 range. They began having children almost immediately afterwards. Prior to marriage, some women did work. In particular, the textile industry very commonly employed women from poor backgrounds as factory laborers. These women were contracted by their parents. They did not choose to do the jobs themselves, usually for a period of three years. However, the conditions were usually horrible, and the dormitories to house workers more closely resembled prisons than anything else. They were often surrounded by high fences to prevent escapes, and the dormitories had notoriously bad sanitation, with mortality from disease being extremely high. Only around 20% of women stuck it through all three years of a contract, most ran away. So I suppose by comparison, marriage wouldn't seem too much of a hardship. Marriages, by the way, were not arranged by the two people involved, but by their households. Legally, the Meiji system put the final say in all household affairs in the hands of the eldest male, in the case of a young woman, usually her father. Thus, women could find themselves forced into marriages they themselves did not want. This wouldn't have been uncommon for families of means during the Edo period, samurai, wealthy merchants, or peasants, that kind of thing, who were looking to protect their family legacy. But for the average woman, the Edo period had been a time of considerable freedom in terms of selecting a husband. Now everyone was stuck with a much more repressive approach to selecting their mates. Sexuality was also policed to a degree that it previously had not been. In the Edo period, daughters of wealthy families were, of course, encouraged to avoid extramarital liaisons, for the simple reason that if the paternity of their children was in any way, shall we say, confused, it threw the all-important issue of succession into disarray. 
For women of lower class, however, things were much freer. They could choose men as they liked, and some even engaged in a practice called yolbai, essentially trying out, shall we say, various men around the village before settling on one they liked. Non-heterosexual behavior was also policed much more heavily during the Meiji period than it had been during the Edo period. During the Edo period, a degree of bisexuality for both men and women was not considered unusual, though totally avoiding the opposite sex would have been considered eccentric and a violation of the obligation to maintain one's family line. However, during the early Meiji period, a law banning homosexual activity was introduced. It was repealed a few years later, but homosexuality still developed an aura of stigma around it that it previously had not had. As with so much else during the Meiji period, this mostly had to do with an attitude shift in response to perceptions of what was civilized in the West versus uncivilized in Asia. Aside from their sexual liaisons with their husbands, women would do the vast majority of the work in rearing any children, and were also responsible for managing household finances and budgeting. This last phenomenon remained common until very recently and still exists in places. I've met Japanese families where the man simply hands over his entire paycheck to his wife and is then given an allowance by his wife. I suppose, in summary, you could say that the position of women was simultaneously raised and lowered during the Meiji period. On the one hand, the role of women in raising children and managing the domestic sphere was given respect it previously had not had. On the other, women who were interested in anything other than raising kids and being the manager of a home would find that ambition very difficult to fulfill. For men, meanwhile, daily life revolved around work. Though the idea of a nation of white-collar workers was a long way off in the future, the work ethic which made Japan famous after World War II definitely already existed during the Meiji era. Hours were long and breaks were few. Sunday was the only regular holiday, and even that was controversial. After all, as some pundits noted, how were Japanese supposed to catch up to the West by working the same amount of hours a Westerner would work instead of more? Daily work hours varied tremendously. Some places had fairly reasonable ones which approximated the hours we, at least in theory, work every day today. Others had 12 or 13 hour shifts, closer to the hours we in practice work every day. The worst I've seen in any book on the subject is 19 hours at a silk plant, though I've been trying to verify that because it seems flat out impossible. As the Meiji period went on, the hours became a bit more regular. Spurred on by fears of social unrest, the Meiji government passed a series of worker compensation and factory laws designed to protect workers from abuses and, hopefully, preventing them from being radicalized into anti-government agitation by those abuses. The government was so nervous about the potential for social upheaval that they actually started passing factory laws in the 1880s, when there were less than 50 factories in Japan total. Still, better early than late, I guess. Inside the factories, an intensely stratified hierarchy divided the workers. Promotion was determined in part by seniority and in part by performance with foremen wielding tremendous power and influence over their underlings. This carries us into an interesting topic, Japan's workers' rights movement. Workers' unions as we think of them in Western countries didn't really hit their stride until after the Second World War, but the general principle of organized labor did exist during the Meiji period. 
However, it was not organized in the traditional way we think of it in the West, i.e. as a sort of antagonistic bargaining chip that enables a strike, the nuclear option of bargaining, to be deployed by the workers. Instead, workers formulated their demands in a Confucian manner inspired by peasant protests during the Tokugawa period. In this line of thinking, it was right and natural that the superiors make more money than they did and have greater status, but workers deserve status too. After all, they were producers who made things and contributed to society, and in Confucian thought that was a valuable and ethical pursuit. They demanded recognition of their innate worth as producers and members of society, formulating this position morally, this is the right thing to do, in other words, with money entering as a symbol of the recognition and the dignity of work, rather than as a prize to be divvied up amongst them. They also demanded that bosses treat them with benevolence. After all, the duty of a superior is to demonstrate his superiority by treating those beneath him kindly, otherwise he is simply a petty man. Now, the terms that were used in this type of discourse, kunshi for superior man, shoujin for petty man, were lifted directly from the Analects of Confucius. Finally, many workers used appeals to the company as a whole to back their stance in favor of better compensation. After all, were they not all servants of the company? Did not all of their work, however great or small, contribute to the company? Here's a good attitude to illustrate what I mean by this, lifted from the work of economic historian Thomas C. Smith. Quote, A young man had to take a position with the Morimura Trading Company and was put in charge of its New York store. After some months, he received a handsome bonus, and his seniors in the company advised him to thank Mr. Morimura and his wife. The young man flatly refused, saying he would resign first. He worked for the company, not for Mr. Morimura, and certainly not for Mr. Morimura's wife. If thanks were necessary, however, let all employees of the company gather in a great hall and thank one another for the effort that made the bonus possible. When word of this reached Mr. Morimura, he thought the young man's position entirely correct and arranged for the mutual thanks ceremony to be carried out. This system of worker-boss relations caught on in a big way during the late Meiji period, and it really laid the groundwork for the post-war union system in Japan, with its emphasis on extremely amicable labor relations and on company loyalty among both workers and management. The idea that accomplishments belong to the company and not the individual remains an ingrained part of working culture in Japan and many firms to this day. It's only very recently, during the 1990s, that a more Americanized culture of individual success has begun to appear in Japanese businesses. Now, before we close today, we've got two more things to cover. What did these people do during the rare hours they weren't at work, and what and how did they eat? For the former, as one might expect, much of the consumer entertainment of the Edo period carried over into the Meiji period, including early forms of manga. The difference being, of course, that now they also contained hints of influence from Western comics. Western literature and drama also proved to be a huge hit in Japan, mostly for its willingness to tackle topics usually considered taboo. For example, Henrik Ibsen's A Doll's House was one of the most popular plays among the young set in Japan, because its female protagonist, Nora, did something that few Japanese women would. She walked out on her self-absorbed husband. The play sparked a huge public controversy over whether or not Nora made the right decision, and Nora's decision to leave was often credited by early Japanese feminists as an inspiration to them. 
The play actually had a very similar effect in China where it was banned as being seditious. In addition to literature, the early 20th century saw the arrival of another Western import, cinema. The first films were shown in Japan in 1897, and within a decade the country had its own domestic film industry. Many of the early Japanese films were jidaigeki, period pieces, romanticized depictions of the age of the samurai, essentially the Japanese equivalent of the spaghetti western. The earliest one I could find was from 1908, called Honnoji Gassen, the battle at Honnoji. It's the tale of Oda Nobunaga's betrayal and death at the hands of his treacherous lieutenant, Akechi Mitsuhide. Now, because these were all silent films, sound not becoming common until the 1930s, Japanese cinema developed its own distinct phenomenon, the benshi, or film narrator. These men were essentially paid to narrate the plots of silent films aloud, adding a bit more life to what were otherwise just images on the screen. Sometimes they were accompanied by music, either live or more commonly recorded. Tragically, the advent of film audio in the 1930s spelled the end of the benshi tradition, though I like to think of things like Mystery Science Theater 3000 keeping the spirit of it alive, if not the exact form. Finally, there's one more specific form of entertainment, for men at least, that I would be remiss not to discuss. Prostitution, you see, was not only legal, but fairly socially acceptable throughout the Meiji period. Because men were always the head of household and had authority over women, young girls could be sold into the industry without their permission. Indeed, bureaucrats were likely to deny a prostitution license to a woman who actually wanted to be a prostitute, on the theory that working in the world's oldest profession out of a sense of obligation to one's family was noble. Doing it because one wanted to have sex was not. Contracts were for a term of six years and could only be terminated early if the owner of the contract, the brothel owner, agreed to it. This particular law was changed in 1901 after a fight in the Yoshiwara, the Tokyo brothel district, broke out between brothel enforcers on the one hand and an Imperial Navy ensign and a British Salvation Army member on the other. The latter two had tried to free a girl from a brothel without the owner's permission. Now, government bureaucrats actually defended prostitution in the face of growing abolition movements until the 1930s, arguing that allowing men to let off some steam was a social good, which protected the majority of virtuous women by sacrificing a few. So yeah, kind of messed up. Full abolition of the trade would not come until after the end of the Second World War. And of course, I'm talking about legal abolition here. In practice, prostitution still does exist in Japan to this day. Now, perhaps no symbol of the degradation associated with prostitution was as prominent as harimise, the display of women behind a cage for prospective clients. I'll post some pictures on the site. Eventually, this practice, too, was outlawed, ostensibly because of issues of public morality. Prostitution was to be tolerated, but not advertised. But likely also because of how damn uncomfortable the whole spectacle was. Finally, let's talk about food. Breakfast and lunch, as we've discussed, were catch-as-catch-can meals. Dinner was the only real family affair, and even then, husbands were often absent owing to work. The diet in Japan shifted a great deal during the Meiji period, with meat becoming a symbol of sophistication and wealth owing to its association with Western cuisine. Much of what we think of as stereotypical Japanese food, curry rice or sukiyaki, for example, came from this period and were attempts to Japanize foods imported from the West. 
Curry rice, for example, is a reflavoring of Indian curry to suit the Japanese palate. I have to say I still prefer the Indian variant. Sukiyaki was a sort of Japanese-style spaghetti, using noodles to stretch out expensive meats and soy sauce to add flavor. So that's daily life in the Meiji period. As you can see, much of the forms of modern Japanese life found their earliest incarnations during this time. In daily life, as with so much else, Meiji was the age that gave birth to a lot of what we think of as modern Japan. That's all for this week. To find out more about this week's episode, or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com, or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapan. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week for the life and times of one of Edo Japan's most scandalous popular writers, Ihara Saikaku. Thank you.